Welcome to the New York City Healing Collective, where we amplify insights from people doing work at the intersection of healing, wellness, and societal transformation. This is your host, Angel Acosta. Let's dig in. So this episode, we want to welcome Dr. Yolanda Sili Ruiz, hermana. How are you? Hello. It's a birthday. happy birthday. I <laughs> uh, just want to uh, channel everybody who loves you and uh, wish you a happy birthday. Uh, I want to welcome you to the New York City Healing Collective podcast and just honor that you can be our first guest. Mm. Uh, talk to me, sis. How are you doing? Well, first, I want to say thank you. Thank you for certainly the birthday wishes. Thank you for having me be the inaugural guest. Um, you have such a brilliant mind. So when your mind creates these things, I, I'm always in awe. And for me to be a central or a beginning part of that brain power of stuff that you create, I'm grateful. Mm. So I'm happy to be here and shout out to everyone. Yes, yes. So, sis, you have an incredible resume. Your work has touched thousands. Uh, your, your main position is as a tenure professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, in the English department. And uh, I want to oh, tell me a little bit about right now, how are you staying grounded in these times? Hmm. And these are some turbulent times, indeed. Um, I'm staying grounded. It's, it's a, quite a few things. Certainly, it's my spiritual life, my very strong belief in God. I was raised that way and, and as an adult has, have come to understand that there's power in that belief for me. Um, and also in um, learning how to sit still. I have to tell you, I learned a lot from you. I want to give you props, Angel, um, because of your generosity in your knowledge and wisdom of guiding, I have learned to um, take time to meditate or take time to just sit still and move slowly. And in this time where there's so much circling around us, you know, you turn on the television, there's madness. You read the newspaper, there's madness. People are treating each other um, in unkind ways. With all of that circling around me, I've learned to find my center. And my center is through self-care. So I go to bed earlier I, uh, and I wake up earlier. Baths are important to me. And I think the most significant thing that I've changed in the last six months, five months, um, is that I exercise. Mm. You know, I'm taking a strength training course and that strength training course has changed me. It's changed my body, certainly. I feel stronger. Mm. I look different. And um, just psychologically, it has grounded me. Mm. You know, I love myself more and um, I'm just very positive of the mind. So it, it, I've, I've changed my diet. I eat differently. I exercise more. I sleep more. And yet I feel in some ways as much as I'm behind because that is part of being in the academy. You never really catch up if people are going to be honest. Um, but I've learned to be more productive when I do have to write. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm changing from the inside out. Mm, that's powerful, sis. 
you know, it sounds like you're doing the crucial work of taking care of yourself. But what I wanted to kind of also point to is the self-love that you're engaging in, and especially as it relates to the love you give others in the classroom. So tell me a little bit about the work you're doing now. Like, tell me what, what you're working on, what, what, what's exciting you most about the work that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Well, the most exciting thing that I'm working on now and, and completed was this book of poetry. And uh, the hope, as I'm talking to my editor and the illustrator and the publisher, that it will be released uh, around Valentine's Day 2020. And the title of the, the book, if I may, is Love Poems from the Vortex and Other Poems. <laughs> And I share that title because I was talking to a student today, and even as I talk, I'm still figuring things out. I'm working academically on this concept, as you know, archaeology of the self. And you've helped in so many ways to help me visualize what those steps are, or some of the steps that are involved in this personal archaeological dig. And in this conversation today during office hours, I realized that the book of poetry is an artifact that manifested from the archeological work that I have been doing around self-love. And as I love myself more, engaging in possible love with a partner. Mm. And so the book of poetry is a manifestation of that. I didn't realize that just until today. Mm. It shows that the archeological dig, if you open yourself, is constant. Mm. It is done, in my case, through writing, but it is also done through speaking with others. And so we talked a little bit about how do you invite others into your life that intimately so that they may help you, if you will, lift the tool to do the excavation. Mm. So then we had to go to class. (laughs) (laughs) I want to kind of um, continue that conversation around the archaeology of self for our listeners who don't know what it is could you give us some context how did you come up how did you come to work with that term and uh, how have you been giving it life i know you've written this poetry that seems to be an article artifact of that but tell me more about the archaeology of self and situate it for for us sure so to situate it i have to go back probably three years ago and I was in a meeting with, um, at the time, Brennan Dubose, who was a doctoral student at Teachers College, College, excuse me, and Moises Lopez, who was a doctoral student at the time at Teachers College. And uh, the meeting was talking about this diversity course that I have been teaching for the past 10 years. And Brennan has always said, you know, you've made that space kind of like you know, Oprah and her, her talk show. Like you've curated this space where people open up and, and you know, you've made that happen. Mm. And then Moises, who was a student in my class, they both took my diversity class and I arranged for both of them to teach it at different times. Moises said, yeah, you know, it's like being in that class was doing an archeological dig on myself. Mm. And that was it. We went on, we moved on, we talked about the class, the diversity, what we wanted to do, and that was it. And I would say about a year ago, I was asked to be interviewed about culturally responsive education. And this gentleman, Manavaskar Kubal, who has done incredible short films, um, he said, you know, yeah, I've been following you and your work, and he's affiliated with the NYU Metro Center. He said, I'd like to interview you. And when I tell you that it was literally the, the night before 
that it came to me, this archaeology of the self, as though, I don't know, someone had spoken to me. Mm. So then I knew that's what I'm going to talk about. Mm. When I went for the interview the other day, and of course, if you look at the interview, we're talking about culturally responsive education, but I told him, you know, I had this student that told me, because he asked me, what do you do in class? I said, I think I engage people in archaeological digs of themselves because mm. that's what this student told me it was for him. That's deep. And so that's where this idea of archaeology of the self came. And I just started incorporating that into racial literacy, which is the other area of work that I do. And I have to, I have learned, come to learn that you can't really have these deep conversations about race or build your racial literacy, if you will, mm-hmm. unless you're willing to do deep digging about where issues of race live within you. Mm. So to some extent, you have to do an archaeological dig of yourself around the issues of race to really find out, well, what are the obstacles, let's say, particularly if you're white, of me engaging in this conversation? Mm. So then it just became an overlap. And here we are. So I will tell you this. When I was interviewed on the video, as I was speaking, I was shaping what the archaeology of the self is. Mm So you were co-creating in the process. In the process, just like today with the student in my, in my, um, my office hours. So I think I, what I want to say is this idea of archaeology of the self probably has to be done in community of some sort, right? So certainly community with the self because there's certain areas of vulnerability um, that you maybe first want to go in by yourself. You know, mm-hmm. not also open to others. That actually takes practice, as mm-hmm. you know. Uh, practice through uh, different therapeutic ways of really going deep within the self. But one thing I realized in talking to this student um, and I reflect over my own self-archaeology is that it has to be in community. You know, I have a best friend. All the changes that I've been going through have been, um, a lot of the revelations have come through conversation with her. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I trust her deeply. Mm. So archaeology of the self, this, this has to be done again, again. There has to be a willingness and openness of spirit and mind. But I think it also has to be done in community. So on some level, it's, 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 it's a co-creative dig. It's a collective dig. Mm. So, so you could say that you and I are digging now. We're, we're engaging in the archaeology of self right now as we use the tools that we've kind of generated throughout the last few years to kind of dig deep to this moment. Oh. And what I want to kind of use the archaeology of self, if you want to draw on that kind of powerful analogy, setting a perimeter, right? And the perimeter is, for me, healing, right? Mm. The New York City Healing Collective, the way we've envisioned it, is just really to amplify the voices of people out there who are doing healing work in non-traditional ways. Healing usually has been kind of reserved for the medical field or the psychologists or the folks with in Western and the Western tradition with particular accreditation. And, you know, if you really honor indigenous communities and communities throughout the world who have all kinds of different ways of healing, all kinds of different ways to arriving at wellness, we know that healers come in all shapes and sizes. And I assist, I see you as a healer. So, so talk to me, think about, let me ask, how do we use, the methodology or the tool of the archaeology of self for the purpose of healing. Okay. In my case, 
And I'm grateful that I have writing as a space. I guess other people have different ways. I think the tools that are involved or the tools that manifest themselves, this is something to really think deeply about. Because for me, when I did the deep digging, and I did it in community, certainly in conversation, but the poetry I wrote absolutely brought healing. Mm. That, that's another conversation probably for another time about what I was healing myself, what I was healing, but it definitely brought about healing to the point that I have this quote that I say, I write to free and heal myself. Mm. And so I will tell you so deeply and honestly, honestly, that the writing of that poetry really has healed my heart in so many ways. Mm. So I, I, I want to say perhaps what comes out of it, um, being willing to do that kind of deep digging, believing in the process. I think um, the tools that are used can aid healing. In my case, it was poetry. For others, it might be music. Others, it might be meditation. But I think that there has to be the willingness, first of all, to know that I am not complete. Mm that there are things that I need to face and I need to work on. And I think the willingness, just like with meditation, to go deep into the subconscious is um, part of the, that's part of the journey. And that is how you start moving towards healing. Mm. I think, I'm still working it out. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm still and thinking about your question. Yeah, we're digging together. So what I hear is, the archaeology of self as really uh, a process by which you surface and you and you dive in uh, into yourself and and I think what's important for folks to notice is that when you dig in, when you surface, whether it's a trigger, whether it's a trauma, whether it's a bias, that what's what's left to do is integrate to integrate. Yeah. That, that surfacing, that revelation, that insight, uh, and letting go as uh, one option. Uh, and then maybe there are other options. There's letting go, there's, there's letting come, there's, mm. there's pushing through, there's transcending. You know, there, there, I, I think that the, the idea of an archaeology of self as a metaphor, could, it lends just to so much um, useful... Um, resources for helping folks really think about the work that they can do daily to transform themselves. You know, and one of the things that I wanted to kind of, uh, I was talking to you and I know that one of the exercises that you do as you're trying to get folks to do this archeology span is the mirror exercise. Could you share with folks just a little bit about the mirror exercise? Mm, yes. Um, the mirror exercise, I actually learned it from or version of it from my mentor, uh, Suzanne Carruthers, who's a former professor at NYU. And the idea of the mirror exercise is exactly what it sounds. It's taking a deep look, right? It's really looking first physically at the self, the person in front of you. And that stands for me. This is not what my mentor told me. This is what I came to develop and understand in the context of my classes that that was the metaphor for the work that we were to do that semester, right? So um, what's always interesting is that in all of the years that I've done this, there's always at least one or two people in the class who cry just at looking at themselves in the mirror. 
And so that could also be a metaphor, right? Sort of the pain, the mm. tears, mm. all that it takes when we, we, we make that decision that we are going to go deep within, mm. we are going to look beyond the surface. Mm. And so uh, for some students, it's both. Like they get it immediately. They get it that some of them physically don't like looking at each other because maybe they were told they were ugly. Um, maybe they don't believe they're beautiful. So that's a reminder because I ask them to stare in the mirror one minute straight and do not look away. Even when you feel tempted, don't mm. look down, mm. don't look to the side, just keep looking at yourself. Mm. And then invariably, as people start unpacking it, they talk about how metaphorically it is about looking within and going back to childhood. But I want to talk about like, who are you in this work? And mm. particularly if you are white, who in terms of who you've been told to be uh, in relation to children of color, what does that mean? Mm. How do you see yourself? How might they see you? And what does that mean in the classroom when you're just trying to be together? Mm. I'm, sure, I'm sure that raises so much for folks. Mm -hmm. um, it always does. You know, I think about how fast uh, time is going and the technological innovations that have produced the current moment of us being so busy. Mm. Our phones give us access to the world and beyond. And this idea of looking at yourself in the mirror being so difficult, it reminds me of how busy we are that we don't even look in the mirror. And we have those little moments where we're doing our hair in the morning and we're brushing our teeth. But how many of us actually like look ourselves right in the eye, you know, directly and connect and say, you know, how are you doing today? Oh, wow. How are you going to show up in the classroom if you're a teacher? How are you going to show up into the boardroom if you're a CEO? How are you going to show up as a mother uh, to pick up your children or to take them to school? They're, the implications of this work are, are just huge for me, especially as all the talk around artificial intelligence and the coming wave of technological innovations. I think this work is gonna be more important. Uh, we've wow. talked a lot about humanizing education, critical pedagogy. I mean, with the, with, with, with the incoming robots that are coming, many, many people talk about uh, a lot of jobs being replaced, but the human heart can't be replaced. Uh, so the archeology span of self, I think, should be something- Returns us to ourselves. Yeah, well, yeah, tell me more about that, you know? How can we... No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you, but this no, always no, happens no. when we talk and get inspired. No, how can we think about the archaeology of self as a, as a tool that could allow us to continuously help us return to ourselves? Yes. I, know, I know meditation and mindfulness and the beautiful work coming out of the Buddhist tradition and the many other contemplative traditions in Judaism and Christianity, they've done great work around helping us think about ourselves and settle down and reflect on the purpose of life. But what is the potential of the archeology span of self as a tool, as a technology? Wow. So, you know, Foucault talks about the technology of the self as a technology that we can then apply to ourselves with, with tools, specific tools, the mirror, looking at yourself, mm -hmm. question, deep inquiry. The writing for full presence, which is something I also do in class. Yeah, tell us more about that. The racial, ethnic, autobiography. You know, I think you just said it. I think you'll be able to teach me on this as I sit 
and really think about archaeology of the self, not just as a method, but as a technology for a return to the self, I think is incredible. And I think it's going to take some more time and, if you will, meditation on if we, if we take this metaphor of the archaeological dig even further, what are the tools that are necessary? And how have the tools, like what you just talked about in my class, of the mirror and the pen or the computer, if you will, of doing this kind of writing, how, does that, how do those items lend toward this, almost this wide awakeness? Mm. Like when, when, when we meditate... We're purposely closing our eyes. We're purposely going within. So I'm trying to do this um, same kind of excavation or deep thinking, if you will, with people present and awake in the classroom. Mm. That requires discussion. That requires the pen to do writing or the computer to do writing. Mm. It's it's almost like trying to do, I don't know, a meditation on the page, a meditation, Mm -hmm. you know, with wide awakeness. Yes. Focus on the self. Yes. With the purpose of how does this focus on the self and the bettering, in quotes, of the self make me a more effective teacher Mm. or mother or partner or friend? Mm. But I'm primarily concerned about the teaching and going into the lives of children. Once you enter that classroom and you're entering their lives, Like you said, how are you showing up? How can I help them in that moment if something even happens in the classroom that can be disorienting? Mm. They may not have time to go into the corner and close their eyes and pray or meditate. How can in their wide awakeness they stop, rely on the work that they've done about themselves deep within so they can control that moment in the most positive and productive way? Mm. Yeah, you talk a little bit about your work with teachers um, for, for listeners who are just beginning to, to get to know you, tell us a little bit about what you do. I know you're a professor at Teachers College and you teach teachers. Uh, you do a lot of professional development, educational leaders throughout the country. Tell us a little bit about that work that yeah. you're doing uh, to get more context. I, I used to think that it was an extension of my classroom. I used to think that when I would go around the country and do... The work that I have for the past five years, really with um, teachers in the New York City Department of Education, I used to think to some extent that what I was doing with my so-called pre-service teachers, so these are teachers who are not yet, you know, command their own classroom space or they're the teacher of record. Many of them are learning the craft of teaching, learning the art of teaching. And I think maybe about two or three years ago, I just was really fully present to understand the fundamentally different yet similar conversations I was having. So I could be with a group of principals and of course, ultimately it's always about children, Mm. but the principals were seeing it from a different space Mm. and that brought different discourse into the room. Mm. The pre-service teachers, they often are doing a little bit more navel gazing um, because, you know, their, their, their way of thinking is so attached to themselves and still trying to figure out themselves. They've not yet had that job where they're responsible for a classroom. So the conversation is different. Mm. And the conversation is different with practicing teachers who are in it every day, mm. who actually rarely take time to do the self-reflection. Mm. But the preferred service teachers spend a lot of time doing. And so it hit me that while we all care about children, that fundamentally it's the same audience across the board, people are accessing 
this understanding of what it is that they do in very different ways. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when you start thinking about gender and race and all of those intersectionalities that we talk about, those intersexual kind of features of the self, it makes the conversation different. Mm -hmm. So I think I became fully present that there's something different and special and amazing that goes on in every room I walk into. And I have found and really paid more attention to how people are, um, I don't know, I want to say it's almost spiritual, Mm. the the stuff that happens by the end of the two or three hours. Mm -hmm. Because with my students, I have 15 weeks. Often with these groups, I only have two hours, Mm. three hours, or five days. Mm. And yet, the experiences end up being so powerful that people are doing deep reflection, not only on their practice, but they're seeing the connection of their lives and their practice. And I think that's something that we've gotten away from. I think teachers kind of come into, particularly if it's not your community, you come in, you kind of do your work and your teaching and you go off and you live your life separately. Mm -hmm. What I was beginning to see is how people were bringing the two together again. Mm. I don't know. I have to think more about that. That's powerful. powerful. I appreciate that. You know, I'm thinking about so many things. I wanted to kind of begin to transition and conclude the conversation, but add some new language to some of the work uh, that you're doing. You know, we talked about the archaeology of the self being kind of a a, a technology of the self. If we were to kind of honor Michel Foucault, which you and I are going to have to do some reading so that we can uh, really uh, do that concept of justice and kind of add a, a twist from our perspective. And then I wanted to kind of leave you with some thoughts around the work being done by uh, Peter Senge and folks at the Systems Awareness uh, Institute. And so they they think about the energy that you generate uh, in a classroom Mm. as a social field. Mm. They call it a generative social field. Um, And I think from watching you teach, you have a really uh, a knack for generating, for creating a generative social field. And a generative social field gives birth to new ideas, gives, uh, opens up space for people to really explore the content matter, creates the opportunities for people to feel the depths of their hurt or their ecstasy. I think that one thing to consider uh, as you move forward in your work is, is, is to continue to reflect on what is it about you and your pedagogy that affects the people in those communities that you're part of to do the work. Mm. And, and, and I, I, won't, I won't answer this for you, but I would venture to say that one of the reasons why you have the effect you do is because you've done the work yourself before you get there. Mm. You know, and I want to ask uh, for some parting wisdom. You know, we have some amazing people listening to the podcast from an array of, uh, you know, backgrounds and traditions. And we're living in some crazy times, sis. You know, mm. what, do you, what, what do you recommend for folks who want to fortify, who want to stay strong, who want to stay grounded? You know, this podcast is in the tradition of folks like Asian Marie Brown and Emergent Strategy. Mm. Many other podcasts out there that are just trying to breathe some life into this mm. dark moment. You know, you're a light in our community. So do any, any parting thoughts, any, any, any wisdom? Well, first, I want to say thank you for this time. I learned so much during this moment. I feel reinvigorated. I feel um, very focused 
And to answer your question, I can only share with you what I discovered for myself and perhaps someone out there will find some hope or some wisdom in it. First is the self-love piece. Mm. I cannot emphasize enough being able to look in that mirror, to look at yourself and to be gracious and generous with where you are in the moment and love yourself in the moment. And that love manifests in different ways, how you treat yourself, how you rest, um, how you, you, the people you surround yourself around. And that's the second thing I want to say. You know, once you start with this self-love, it's not a step. You know, it's kind of two or three trains running. Make sure the people around you, that you love them and they love you. Mm. What I want to say, Angel, is you've been generous and kind talking about the love and the energy that I give out. What I want people to understand is I'm only able to do that, yes, first, because I do love myself, but that I get so much back. Mm -hmm. I get so much back. The energy that's created goes in both directions, the love. Mm. I can't tell you how... There's a couple of folks that every day I just get a message, I love you every day. Mm. That's it. Yeah. So number one, self-love. Number two, the love of community and community love. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, number three, hell, just enjoy life. Yeah. That was part of the party, you know, last Friday. You know, I couldn't have had that party by myself. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I would have danced. I could have danced in the mirror and had a great time and sang. The birthday songs. party, right? The birthday party that I had. To be able to have that celebration in community. Mm. You know, I was just, I had not had a drink all night, but yet I was probably the highest person in the room. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> joy, joy. I think that's a great topic to end on and to end with is just joy. What does it mean to, yes, engage in the hard work of an archaeological dig of the self for the purpose of becoming more fully present to who you are in your professional and personal spaces, but more importantly, to live joyously, to to live with joy in one of the most um, turbulent and change-infused times in human history, you know, mm. something to hold on to. And the liberation that comes with that. Right? Hey, yes. And, so knowing, and, knowing, and knowing we stand on our ancestors' shoulders. Period. Period, right? So I'm going to have to invite you back for yes. a, a conversation on that. With that being said, thank you so much. Sister Hermana, Doctora Yolanda. <laughs> all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we look forward to bringing you some more powerful healers who are doing great work in the community. Take care.